The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Will the feud between the US and Turkey put other emerging markets in the crosshairs? And one of China's bad banks gets whacked by political risk. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking News columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hi. We'll be handing over to our Hong Kong team later in the show, but this week's top story is the financial crisis walloping Turkey. The policies of President Erdogan's administration had already fostered an overheating economy with rising inflation and easy access to credit. But a few days ago, U.S. President Donald Trump turned on the man he praised and admired just months ago, slapping import tariffs on Turkey in a fight essentially over a jailed pastor. So we've got on the line to discuss this. Swaha Patanayak in London and Gina Chon in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the both of you. Thanks. Hi, thank you. Um, let me start off with you, Swaha. You've been covering what's been happening in with Turkey's economy and indeed other emerging markets over the past few months. Just put into context for us, what, where was Turkey already? It was already in a bit of a mess, to say the least. And we saw it getting hit when Argentina came under pressure a few months ago in May, I think. Um, just lay the background for us. Uh, what's put Turkey in such a precarious situation? One of the problems, um, Anthony, are sort of very much uh, about the relations between the US and Turkey more recently. Turkey's problems are very much homegrown. They have a problem with the central bank not raising interest rates early enough or by enough to convince investors that it's serious about curbing inflation. It also has a couple of other problems, such as a large amount of foreign currency debt, so debt that it has to repay both public sector and private sector, but which is denominated either in dollars, maybe, or euros, or something else that it's not printing. And then again, it has a lot of short-term external debt that's debt held by foreigners. All of these things have already undermined the Turkish lira, even before this tension sort of broke out into the open more recently. So this 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 reminds me. Of, I mean, I mean, choose your crisis. Frankly, you know, August, of course, is always a great month for crises. You can go back to 1998 when you had that the Russia default. Uh, in 1997, we had various um, Asian countries coming under threat. Uh, and often it was for, for similar reasons, right? So you've got too much borrowing, economies going too much paces, too much reliance on foreign credit. Um, why is it that Erdogan has allowed it to get into the situation? Because he, I mean, especially since the last election, he now has even more power. But he's been, in, he's been president for, what, 13, 14, 15 years now? Yes, uh, he's been in power a long time and it's been brewing. I mean, these are not new issues that have suddenly surfaced. What has heightened the the problems is the um, scaling up of rhetoric, if you like, and in the run up to this last round of presidential elections, which he won, there was a lot of fiscal pump priming um, that has been perhaps uh, overheating the economy a little bit and meant there's a lot of credit being taken out. Um, in, on top of that, we have a global environment where the dollar is rising, US interest rates are rising, so people are not so desperate to go anywhere and everywhere to get a bit of a yield, as we were talking in past months. We've talked about the hunt for yield or in past years. Th- this is becoming less of an issue when the US, which is a very safe country, uh, offering with very liquid markets, offering relatively good interest rates compared with the negative interest rates we have here in Europe anyway. 
so Sawaha, I, I, you know, kind of to, to step back here, it sounds like this has been the situation in Turkey for quite a long time, that the, the economy has been sort of heating up for various reasons. Um, Erdogan has been in power. He seems to be just kind of doing everything that he can to keep the economy growing. I'm still confused. Is, is this kind of recent crisis only because of a tweet that Donald Trump sent about this um, imprisoned uh, American pastor? I mean, like, why? I just don't quite understand where investors all of a sudden woke up and said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. I mean, the Turkish lira fell a lot. It fell sort of as much as 14% overnight in Asian trading before anything happened from the U.S. side. Tensions okay. had occurred before, but there was, there's also, you know, the issue of um, what you call capitulation, if you like, investors throwing in the towel. So people who might have been holding on in the hope that things would get better finally just give up. Some of that was happening even before that tweet about the tariffs um, on some okay. Turkish aluminium yeah, steel. He, he was, uh, Erdogan was out giving, a, giving a, well, I don't know if it was a, a stump speech or an impromptu, uh, tirade, but basically was on the uh, out saying, look, you've got to start, you know, selling your dollars. You've got to start, you know, supporting the economy. All of you Turks, um, and that had already that was what was it was worrying the market, right? That he seemed to be it getting was into desperation. Mode. Happened before. I mean, he said it again since. But if when right. you start telling people that, you know. I think the quote was something in the long line, the lines of they have dollars, we have our God, and asking people to, say, sell dollars and gold that they may be holding as an economic sort of act of economic patriotism, this starts worrying investors. It may not ah. be that, you know, mm. that Turkey is, uh, its reserves still, ha you know, have dollars and it has scope to defend itself. But these are the sort of things that make investors think, OK, I'm just going to leave this country alone for a bit and see where we get to perhaps a little bit later. And things just get got worse and worse. And that's where the problem started snowballing, as I think you were saying, Jen. Okay. All right. So, so let's bring you in on this, Gina. So, you know, a few months ago, Trump thinks Erdogan's fantastic. He's one of the several autocratic leaders around the world that he made a point of congratulating for various elections or for various policies instituted in his first few months uh, in the White House. What changed? Why why is this jailed pastor so crucial to the talks? And is it really about him? I mean, I, mean, I, I got to confess, I think it's always about follow the money. And I wonder with Trump whether he's got business interests or whatever with in Turkey or with Tur Turkish people that annoy him. Um, but what is it that's, that's, that's driven Trump to, to turn so completely on Erdogan? Yeah, in, in with Trump, it's always hard to know, but it does seem that the detention of this American pastor, Andrew Brunson, for about uh, almost two years now is what um, tipped the balance. He's, uh, his cause is uh, something that's become important to uh, the evangelical community here in the United States, which are also uh, core Trump supporters. And I think they've also been pushing uh, Trump to do something Thing about this and uh, Trump actually thought he had a deal to free this pastor uh, in exchange for some things that uh, Israel did for uh, someone that uh, Erdogan cared for in, in terms of um, being detained there and, and freeing them so they thought they had this uh, prisoner swap essentially and when that fell apart uh, you saw Trump take to Twitter as he often does to express his anger. 
And he takes out his anger by saying we're going to impose tariffs on the entire country. Well, on, on the steel and aluminum uh, tariffs, which have already been hitting U.S. allies, but Trump decided to literally double down on them. So now uh, steel imports from Turkey have a 50 percent levy and aluminum has a 20 percent tariff. And, and how has Turkey responded? Um, I think there has been... I. Uh, at the political level, there was some surprise. And then as the days have gone by, we have started to see uh, retaliation, say tariffs are um, imposed on particular American goods, sort of um, forms of tobacco, electronics. Um, so the actual sort of monetary value of the, the imports is less important than the symbolic value of uh, yeah. what is being done. Um, so let, let's just take a step back here even further, because what what does this mean? Like, do you, in terms of Turkey, is this going to be a larger crisis, global crisis, or is it going to be contained to Turkey and emerging markets? I mean, what's your read on this? The the it's not clear yet. I think we are in a very different environment to the one we were in, say, I don't know, nine months ago. The Fed mm -hmm. is further along its interest rate cycle and is going to carry on interest, raising interest rates. Uh, U.S. bond yields are higher. The dollar is strong. So altogether, you have a condition whereby investors may be a little more risk averse more quickly. Um, the problem starts when you look at who else looks like Turkey. So if you start ranking countries which have high external debt, which have current account deficits, I mean, Argentina, very close to home, has a lot of the same similar resemblances that we're talking about here on these metrics. So investors, if they're getting a bit wary, will start looking down that list saying, who else looks like Turkey? Not because they may have exactly the same problems to the same extent. But even Turkey doesn't have as big a current account deficit as some other countries. So one could say, why pick on Turkey? Why not pick on them first? It's the combination of all these things. And I think the lack of policy credibility in investors' eyes that has developed in the recent weeks, which has really brought what were concerns, nagging concerns, into a crisis point. Yeah, I mean, we've got this so far this week, we've seen what Indonesia raised rates on Wednesday. Um, Argentina raised yes. rates mm -hmm. earlier in the week yeah. to what, 45% uh, uh, in Argentina? Was, yeah. So, um, you know, we're seeing countries take action, I suppose. I, I mean, is this really just in, to make sure that investors know that? that these countries are trying to do more than, say, investors think Turkey is doing? Yes, uh, to some extent. And it's also to say if your currency is depreciating and you want to both shore up the currency and show that you are serious about heading off any inflationary feed through that might happen, you're ahead of the game. It's a signal. But if investors who have plowed a lot of you know money into the emerging market since the taper tantrum in 2013, if a lot of that were to come out again and people would start going underweight, which they're not really underweight according to the latest Bank of America Merrill Lynch fund manager survey, it's just tiny underweight relative to their benchmark. If people were to go as underweight as they were in taper tantrum days, we could see a lot of money coming out. Okay, so let's talk about the trade aspect to all of this. That seems to be making this problem way worse. And and, and just talking about Donald Trump and sort of how he's using this as, as retaliation, where you probably haven't seen this pretty much with any other uh, American president, at least in, in a while. So, I mean, 
how does that make the situation worse? And, you know, we've sort of discussed, like, the trade thing, it's not something you can just kind of snap your fingers and the whole thing will be over. So, Gina, kind of talk about how this is just complicating things. Yeah, well, we have definitely see how it exacerbated the situation in Turkey. Um, for the U.S. side, he again used the national security rationale to double these tariffs, saying that uh, the tariffs that were already in place haven't reduced um, steel imports enough, and so national security is still a concern, and that justifies the doubling of these tariffs. The problem is the tariffs that were already in place actually were hurting uh, Turkey in particular, a lot um, and much more than any other country. So it was actually mm. working for imports there, um, coming from there. We saw a volume drop uh, almost 60% this year compared to last year. And you haven't seen those kinds of decreases from China where you actually saw imports go up. And that's the uh, country that's blamed actually by the Trump administration for an oversupply in the steel markets. So it's if you're going to say that, you know, national security is a concern still because imports haven't decreased enough, then targeting Turkey of all countries is a strange place to go. So that's just raised uh, even more questions um, among especially Republican lawmakers who are critical of these tariff moves and possibly give some more fuel to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. What can they do? Because just looking at this, it seems like Trump has gone rogue with trade. Um, so what can Congress do if the, and if, if there's any movement um, to, you know, rein them in, basically? Yeah, you are seeing, uh, in particular in the Senate, um, more bills pop up that would require congressional approval for tariffs, particularly when they do um, uh, concern national security. Um, but it's unclear whether they'll be successful, especially because Trump has veto power. So that's uh, okay. a big hurdle to get over. But even just the um, growing concern and moves to uh, propose legislation does have an effect on the administration. We saw um, some of those worries uh, spur them to announce uh, $12 billion in aid to farmers because of retaliatory tariffs they were facing. Um, so it, it's not like it uh, doesn't have an effect at all, but the question is whether they can really handcuff him in the way that some of these proposals uh, say they will. What powers do they have at the moment? I mean, as I understood it, when we first started looking at tariffs last year, the president only had, in, in some instances, the ability to put, impose tariffs for six to 12 months or something. There was a time limit on how long they could stay. Is that the case with these, or, no, or when, is there some when other you're um, citing national security as a reason, you have a lot of leeway, um, and Congress has delegated a lot of its uh, trade authority to the president, although under the U.S. Constitution, um, foreign commerce is actually under the purview of Congress. So theoretically, they could um, do a lot more and, um, and take back a lot of the authority that they've given to the president. Um, you just see that, frankly, a lot of them are scared to do that, even if they are worried, because Trump is still pretty popular among his base. And we see November elections coming up, and none of them want to be um, the victim of an angry tweet <laughs> that could cause uh, their own election chances to suffer. Okay, Gina and Swaha, thanks so much for coming on and explaining this uh, this rather complex web 
I'm sure we'll be having both of you back on on both of these and other topics very soon. Thanks. Thanks. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong with Christopher Bador. Um, we are talking about the troubles of China Huarong asset management of late. Um, it's kind of an interesting story. This is one of China's four bad banks, as they call them. They were asset managers created after the Asia financial crisis in 1997 to mop up bad debt. They are controlled by the Ministry of Finance for the most part, although they have list, two of them have listed and they've got some private money. But China Huarong has run into a lot of trouble at late. Um, they're on a cash squeeze. They're cutting salaries. Um, they just issued a profit warning and have been trying to pull back loans. It's all related to the investigation into their chairman, who just resigned in April, um, over you know disciplinary issues, and he stepped down. And the whole company is a mess. Um, it's interesting because this is a state-owned, you know, giant asset manager, so it's kind of unusual. Chris, how unusual is this? I mean, and and what's your take on what exactly happened here? Well, it's both unusual and it's not. Let's start with how it's not unusual. Uh, I think that we've seen several quite large companies, especially in the financial space, suddenly essentially get just shot down out of the sky over the past, say, year to 18 months. So that includes like Anbang, that would include H&A, you can go through the list, and now we've got Huarong, which uh, the CCDI starts an investigation of its head, Lai Xiaomin, and now, essentially, we see this the, the same thing that afflicted many of the other entities, which is you get these liquidity squeezes. We've got to start selling off our assets. We're going to start focusing on the core bits. I think the part that is unusual, though, is, like you said, this is a state-owned company. So you would not otherwise expect the state to be cracking down on uh, a company that it controls and that offers it a lot of funding. Um, well, and especially you wouldn't expect investors to be reacting like this. I mean, it's one thing to drag a bureaucrat, you know, off the stage and, and put him to jail. You know, um, in private companies, you know, some of these founders are, are like the key people. Like they they have all the control. Like the company cannot do anything without them. You know, with on-buying insurance, you know, the, they've designed companies so that they're not replaceable. But this is not supposed to happen, you know, with, with right. a state-owned enterprise. Right. I'm, I suppose one way to think about this is – if Huarong, if you don't even think of it as a company, if you think of it just as a branch of government that happens to have some outside investors okay. and they view this as uh, just another, we're going to, a Rudin branch overhaul, we're going to really investigate how far the rot dipped. And, and to the extent that investors are concerned, we really don't care about them. I mean, this is a government entity. We're, we're, we're searching and we're investigating government actors within this. Uh, so I suppose in that sense, it it, it kind of checks out. But, but I mean, that's quite I, frightening, right? Because these guys went and raised dollar debt. Or, I mean, you know, Huarong, Sinda. Right. They've also gone out into the markets and, and raised, you know, tens of billions of, of dollars in outstanding bonds, you know, offshore and then also onshore as well. So, Well, so what do you think the message for investors or the takeaway here for investors? Well, I mean, be? you know, it's not the first SOE to have gotten in trouble and, and had market reactions. You know, you've had and, and for that matter, there's a lot of state-owned enterprises that don't do particularly well in the stock market. I mean, Huarong is down 50% year to date. Um, you know, Sinda is also down. You know, so like just buying shares in these companies is not safe. But like the debt question is, is, is a bit more interesting because the bonds are supposedly sovereign guaranteed by the state. Yet this company is like having to sell off stuff and hack salaries, presumably, to, to keep on meeting its debt service requirements, which I think is 
is a strange message. But, I mean, to be fair, these guys went heavily into shadow banking. They were founded in the late 90s to deal with this very specific problem in the banks. They're just still kind of hanging around, in addition to dealing right. with distressed debt, gone into all sorts of other things. I mean, Huarong was doing business with CFC China Capital, which was buying shares and trying to buy a stake in Rosneft. They were lending the H&A Group. This company did a lot of business. They were talking about buying Ingram Micro from H&A. What was that about? You know, it's supposed to be a distressed debt manager, but they were, they were kind of wandering way off a reservation. I mean, I feel like this, this also hits at a broader question, which is the relationship between the state and the state-owned companies. Right. Right, because you have to ask the next logical question is if, if Huarong was doing all of these kind of crazy things, why was the state, I mean, maybe you can answer this. Why, why was the state condoning that? Why didn't they just say stop at a certain point? Yeah, well, I called Xi Jinping, um, but he was busy. So, <laughs> so he didn't That's give me the bad. answer. I'll, I'll get back and we'll do another podcast on I mean, I just, just two things, you know. I mean, one, like they fell afoul of the shadow banking thing. Two, I mean, all these guys have listed in Hong Kong, right? So I don't think the regulators are that worried about share price performance in Hong Kong as, as much right. as they are about, you know, sending the signal that, like, you guys need to get your, your portfolios back. Third, you know, China's blurring the line between private and state in both directions. Mm. I mean, you have, like, the party. A lot of investors were looking at, for example, the idea that the state would put party committees and, and more control into private tech firms as a positive thing, right? Like, okay, great. We're going to have better harmonization with the central government's goals, and we're going to be less likely to get in trouble because we've got this state stake. But this kind of shows that the state isn't one thing. Like, like part of the state really doesn't like what Huarong was doing, even though another part of the state owns Huarong. So you still have these human key man risk. I mean, the fact that Lai went out and made these flaky investments is costing all of his investors just as if it was like a private enterprise. And really, it does seem like in this case, the government is saying, we're going to treat you just like the rest of these companies you lent to, you know, like the H&A Group, like Hannergy. You know, we're going we're gonna to subject you to the same level of scrutiny and, and let your investors take, take some more risk and... Uh, for people are coming in, they're going to have to they're going to have to start pricing that in. So, is the extension of that basically that we're seeing kind of a spectrum from state-owned to private of Chinese corporates? Yeah, well, it goes both ways, right? I mean, you have to everybody's going to have to do their due diligence. You can't just be like, oh, well, they're state-owned. Sweet, you know, I can just buy that. There's, right. there's, it's right. all underwritten. Um, it's just not a not a one-way bet, obviously. That's our show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Swaha Patanaik, Gina Chan. Pete Sweeney and Chris Bedore for coming on the show. We also doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Andrew D'Antonio, and Ben Kellerman. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.